John chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Well, let us pray for God's blessing upon his word preached. Our Father, we know your word is just that, your word, and yet how little we know of it, how little of the riches of the glories of Christ we see And so we pray that we will see more, hear better, and that our faith will rise up higher to the heavenly places where Christ is seated. Bless us with that blessing, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. If you were to think of some of Christ's most stupendous miracles, you could go back to John chapter 2 with the wedding at Cana, turning water into wine. You could uh, see all of the people who were uh, medically uh, in a very bad place and all of a sudden healed by an act of Christ's power, Lazarus being raised from the dead, and so on and so forth. I wonder if the shock that people had from someone being able to perform miracles gets even close to the shock that is on display here from the disciples over what Christ is doing. In other words... What is before your eyes is truly more shocking in a certain sense than a man in Jerusalem being able to perform miracles. Uh, If you think about it, 
God doing the miraculous makes sense. It is an act of power, and God is powerful. But God stooping to take on the form of a servant, a slave, is utterly bewildering. And that is something where I think in John chapter 13, you need to understand that there is something going on here that actually transcends in a certain sense the uh, glories of performing miracles. And you're going to see that we have chapter 13 through to chapter 21 that takes up the space of a few days in the life of Christ. What is ultimately important for John to tell you about Christ's life? This is not a very good biography by modern standards. It is a theological biography, and the most important things for you to know take up roughly half the gospel, but only a few days. Again, that doesn't make any sense by modern standards. So what is so important? Well, the first thing you need to see is that Jesus is now fully aware that his hour had come. In other words, Jesus knows that his fate is sealed, that he is going to die and die very soon. Now, later on in chapter 13, you read that this distresses him. He says he knows his death is not just going to be a nice uh, falling asleep and then going off to glory. I, from a very young age, have thought, I hope I die in my sleep. Uh, the older I get, the less I'm inclined to want to go like that. Uh, I'd like to have some real preparation, say some farewells to my kids, tell them not to marry foreign women, and all the rest. But the point is, Jesus is under no illusions of what is awaiting him very soon. And when we are under such mental and emotional distress and agony, how much service are we usually to other people? Have you ever faced crises in your life? Is your first instinct to go around serving other people? Usually we become very self-centered. It's part of our weakness as human beings. When we are in trouble, we need people to minister to us. We need to talk about us. We need to think about us. We become the center of the universe in a more profound way. Jesus does the very opposite. When he knew that his hour had come, that he was going to die a cursed death, he decides that he is going to show love to others. And the word that John uses, it's translated in the English here, he's going to love them to the end. And that doesn't really capture, I think, the theological import of what he's saying. He's going to show them, as Thomas Goodwin says in his wondrous book, The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth. He begins with this passage, that Jesus is going to now show them the full extent of his love. It's not just about duration, it's about quality. He's going to show them His love to the end, to the fullest. And that's very important for you to understand. What is the greatest act of love He can show to His disciples? Well, you'll notice it isn't Him going to the cross immediately. It's Him preparing them for that. They don't yet understand, but they will. Now, for this to happen, a number of other events need to take place. One is 
the betrayal of Christ in fulfillment of the Scriptures by Judas Iscariot. So along in chapter 13, you get this idea of Jesus speaking of love, of service, of servanthood. But on the other side, you get the idea that for this to happen, Jesus is going to need to die. And for Jesus to die, he must be betrayed by one of his own friends. That person is Judas, who is a willing receptor to Satan. Why? Because he was selfish, he was godless, he did not concern himself for the poor, he did not wash the feet of saints, he was someone with whom Satan was most pleased to inhabit. And just as Judas is fully responsible for his actions, so we are told that in the actions of the wicked, Satan is right there with them. And so, it is a cosmic battle taking place on earth. Now, you'll notice something else in verse 3. And this is something that if you carefully read the Gospels, you can't help but notice that when Jesus usually speaks of glory, shortly thereafter or immediately thereafter, there is an emphasis on suffering. There is glory and there is suffering. Or, if he speaks of suffering, there will be glory. They are two sides of the same coin. So, uh, one example, since some of you may not believe me. uh, The transfiguration, is that glory or suffering? That is glory. But, A careful reader of the transfiguration will notice not only that the cross is the flip side to the transfiguration, but when he comes down from the mountain, what does he speak of? He speaks of his death. That when Jesus is approached by crowds and they want to make him king and there's glory coming his way, what does he do? He retreats to pray and seek the Father. All of this is to say Jesus is aware that his hour has come, but he is also aware that all things have been given into his hands, that he has come from God and that he is going to go to God, but his route to the Father is through the cross. So what does he do? He rose from the supper. Now I want you to understand the painting that you're used to seeing of all the disciples sitting at that nice table, and the beautiful uh, illustration of the Lord's Supper is entirely wrong. Uh, That can come as a severe blow to some of you who uh, have that painting on your wall at home. I'll buy it off you, um, and then I will burn it. Um, They were not sitting at a table. They were lying down on a mat, And there would be a sort of table where their feet would be away from the table and they would rest on their left arm because they would eat with their right arm and they would talk and they would eat and they would be reclining at table. You know how many times that reference comes up in Scriptures? Lots. They reclined at table. They didn't sit at table. So they're reclining at table, lying there, and their feet are away and Jesus now gets up from the supper. Now, you'll notice something else that John doesn't do. What does John not disclose to us? He doesn't disclose to us the elements of the Lord's Supper. The synoptics do, and I assume that John is aware that these Gospels in circulation describe the elements of the Lord's Supper. This is my body, this is my blood, and so he is focusing on something else that took place at this supper. 
So he rises from his mat and he laid aside his outer garments. And this is what is so shocking. He takes a towel and ties it around his waist. Now, why is that shocking? That's shocking because what he is about to do is take on the form of what the role of a slave in that society would do. A slave would do that. You were not allowed to just wash people's feet. One time, a a dear mother tried with her son, who was a rabbi, and because she wanted to exalt her son, who was this great rabbi, she asked for permission to wash his feet, and he wouldn't allow her, and she actually took him to rabbi court to see if she could have the ruling overthrown where she would be allowed to wash his feet. But it was frowned upon. It was something for slaves or for Gentiles or sometimes little children. But you did not wash people's feet if you were a Jew. And so what Jesus is doing is He is not speaking so much, but acting as a slave. And that's why this becomes such a stumbling block. Because lo and behold, He comes to Simon Peter. And I suspect that if indeed He did come to Simon Peter first, he knew precisely how Simon Peter was going to react. How does Simon Peter react? Lord, do you wash my feet? The first words of Peter in this instance are a bit implicit, but there's basically a rejection here. It's a question of incredulity. Okay, He can't believe it. And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. He is speaking of the fact that Peter will need to have his sins washed. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Now notice Peter. Peter, on the one hand, sees that this is absolutely an inversion of what should ordinarily take place. John the Baptist is not even worthy to untie the sandals of Christ. Peter knows that if Jesus is Lord and he has confessed him as Lord, then it should be Peter who should be washing his feet, and yet the Lord, the Messiah, the Christ, is washing Peter's feet. So Peter at first says, this doesn't make any sense. But then notice Peter with what appears to be an act of humility in saying, oh no, 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 how can you possibly wash my feet? Notice how Peter now becomes the boss of the Lord. You shall never wash my feet. I don't claim to be the world's greatest psychologist. I can barely understand myself, never never mind my children or wife at the best of times. But I will say this. I think Peter was a pretty bossy person. I think he was pretty strong-willed, strong-headed. I don't think he was a pushover. And um, you get no prizes for thinking that. And here you have Peter actually telling the Lord what to do. Uh, He's done this before, remember, when Jesus said that he was going to be betrayed into the hands of men and crucified. And Peter says, this will never happen. Here he is saying, Lord, this will never happen. You shall never wash my feet. There's a phrase we have in um, scholarship. Never say never and never say always. 
the Reformed always say this, and then you go and find someone who didn't actually. So you should never say never and never say always. And that's a good approach in life. Never say never and never say always. Because here you have someone saying never, and guess what? Seconds later is happening. He's having his feet washed. And how is that made possible? Well, Jesus answers him, and it really is an unfair debate, is it not? Jesus doesn't lose debates. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. You have no inheritance. It's the same word used of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, verse 2, where he asks for his inheritance. And Peter speaks of our inheritance in 1 Peter chapter 1. Jesus is saying, if I don't wash your feet, you have no inheritance, Peter. Now, Peter, not only being bossy and strong-willed and outspoken, is also someone who likes a taste of the glory, right? We know that too. He wants to sit at the right hand of the Messiah. He wants the glory. So when he is told that his glory will be taken from him, what does he say? Well, Lord, let me tell you then what you ought to do. I will agree with you, but I will agree with you on my terms. I think we see Peter's denial of Jesus, and that's a horrific sight to us, right? It's just awful. But Peter's pretty awful here. He goes from feigned humility to absolute lordship over Christ in the way that he wants him to act. Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Uh, he wants to be absolutely certain. He's not content with what Christ offers him. He wants more. And I think there's a bit of unbelief here. He doesn't really believe what Jesus has said is sufficient. And he goes beyond Christ's words. Now, you might need to allegorize a little too much for my liking to get at something out of this. But it does display something about human nature. God speaks and we go beyond God's word. It happens right here. Now Jesus says the one who's bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. And that's what happens in society. There are certain things we get dirty. In our culture, it's our hands. You know, you, you say hi to people at church, you shake their hands, and you know, when I'm out in Surrey, I use a lot of hand cleaner. You know, it's people from Surrey. Uh, come here to Vancouver, I don't need as much hand sanitizer. And, uh, and so on and so forth, right? So we get our hands dirty and we wash them. There in that culture, they didn't have uh, Nikes and nice closed shoes with socks on and you cape your feet. You know, people talk about washing feet here. I'm like, what do you mean? I mean, they might smell a little bit, but with socks and shoes, they're not like the feet back then. The feet back then were caught in dust and sand. They're not nicely paved uh, sidewalks. They were actually quite filthy, the feet. The body is clean, and so only the feet need to be. Now, what is he talking about? I think what he's talking about is the fact that they are made clean by their forgiveness of their sins, but the washing of the feet is tantamount almost to the idea that we daily go to the Lord for forgiveness. Are we forgiven? Are we justified? Yes. Do we need to go to the Lord each day, and do we have a prayer of confession that we need to be cleansed in our terms of our feet? Yes, both are true. And he says that you are all clean, but... Not every one of you. One hasn't been cleansed. One hasn't been forgiven. One hasn't been saved. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you. Now I have no doubt that Jesus washed the feet of Judas. No doubt whatsoever. 
mainly because as the chapter unfolds, if he had skipped over Judas, it would have caused a commotion and everyone would have said, okay, hang on, what's going on here? But nobody knew what was going on regarding Judas. Nobody pointed to him and said, it's Judas. The other reason I believe he washed his feet is because Jesus loved his enemies, not just his friends. And so it shows us that no outward rite, even if it is performed by the Lord of glory himself, can necessarily guarantee salvation. There are many who are baptized who do not know the realities of baptism. There are many who eat and drink the Lord's body and blood, but do not know the realities of what it is to feast on Christ. And here Judas receives the outward reality of washing, but not the inward reality of forgiveness. And that's ultimately what this washing points to and something that he missed out on. So Jesus takes this shocking display of the Lord of glory stooping to his disciples to teach them a lesson. And that lesson is that they should do likewise. You'll see that in verses 12 to 17. He says that you call me teacher and Lord. You are right. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, verse 14, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I have given you an example. So if you have your what would Jesus do bracelet on right now, I don't know, uh, anyone got one on? No, why? Because we're a Reformed Presbyterian church. Uh, We don't do those evangelical shibboleths anymore, do we? Well, you can get one. It's right in the Bible. What would Jesus do? He would wash feet. What should I do? I should wash feet. He says that. I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done. There you go. It's right there in the Bible. And this is just the consummation of Christ's consistent teachings about doing the will of God. Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Those who do the will of God. Or James saying, the person who does the will of God, not just being a hearer only, And there are so many other places. And Jesus is trying to say, I have given you now an example. But, there is a problem still. And it lurks in the background in verse 18. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture must be fulfilled. My death must take place. And here's another shocking aspect of this Last Supper. Not only that Jesus is stooping down to wash the feet of people infinitely lower than Him in dignity and honor, but that even one of His friends, He who ate My bread, has lifted His heel against Me. Judas has lifted His heel against Christ. And Christ is telling them this now so that when it takes place, they will believe that He is who He said He was. Now, there are a number of things I think we need to note, but I just want you to also understand something that I think is lurking in the background here. In Psalm 49, where this quote comes from, it's 41 verse 9, sorry. In verse 1, the psalm opens, Blessed is the one who considers the poor. And what's interesting about Judas is that earlier on in this gospel, we were told that he didn't actually care for the poor. 
So you have Judas who doesn't actually care for the poor, and you have a quote from Psalm 41, verse 9, that's attributed to Judas who lifts his heel against Christ. But the person who's going to be blessed is the one who considers the poor. Judas is cursed. Why? Because he didn't consider the poor. He didn't want to wash the feet of others. Now what does this mean for us? It means, by way of a first point, that the last instructions are usually the most important instructions. Parents know this when they're going away. I go out last night. Uh, my son uh, has some friends over. Plural. There may have been females present. I'm not going to lie. We're, we have all sorts of characters in our house. Animals, friends, enemies, you name it. Um, they come over. And uh, I had to go out with Barb. Uh, long drive together off into some far-reaching place of BC called Mission. And um, What are the last instructions? It's not, oh, well, make sure that the sugar is filled up in case we run out. Do we do that sometimes as an instruction? Yeah. It's, Katie, you need to be home around all of these young people, and I don't want them going off to any other rooms than the main area. That was an instruction. To me, that's the most important. I'm not trusting teenagers. I was one a few years ago. (laughs) And we do that. The dog, take the dog for a walk. Why? Because my dog's a bit moody. If you don't take my dog for a walk, you know what he does as an act of rebellion against our family? He goes and poos somewhere in the house if we don't walk him. And I don't blame him, to be honest. He should be walked. You take a dog on in your family, you should walk it. Last instructions, walk the dog. Because if you don't, he will fight back in the only way he knows how. So what are the last instructions? They're the most important instructions. And the most important instructions here is that Jesus wants to leave behind servants in His name. People who are prepared to wash feet. Now the problem is, He has to give us this instruction because by nature this does not come to us. We are all gods to ourselves. We all want to be served rather than to serve. And we would prefer it Now listen very carefully. We would prefer it if Peter had washed the feet of Christ rather than Christ would have washed the feet of Peter. Why is that? Because if Peter washes the feet of Christ, it all makes sense to us. And we like things that make sense to us. That is why false religion makes sense to people. You do certain things, you go to heaven. What does the Gospel say? You can't do anything to get to heaven. Someone else must do it for you. What does the Gospel say? No. The Son of God, the eternal Son of God, the exact imprint of God upon the face of Jesus Christ, the visible image of the invisible God, He must come and wash your feet. You don't wash His feet. That's an inversion of how it should be. And that's what the Gospel does. Why is that important? It's important because if that is the case, what does it mean for you and I? It means there is nobody in this world whom you cannot serve. 
if it is only from the lesser to the greater serving, then we would only do things for people we deem to be above us. Peter sees Christ as above him. I can wash your feet. That makes sense to me. But if the person with the greatest dignity is prepared to wash the feet of sinners, what does that mean for you and I? It means that every single person in this world, if you are confronted with that situation, is someone whose feet you could wash. That's why we would prefer Peter to wash Christ's feet rather than Christ to wash Peter's. There is no one exempt from your service. And you have the greatest person, the Son of God, the greatest person ever or can be conceived, the Son of God, doing the greatest act of love, laying down His life. No greater love has a man than this that He lay down His life for His friends. And then you go, okay, the greatest person is doing the greatest act of love. This has got to be good. What's He doing? Who's He doing this for? You see this fine young strapping man in our church and he goes and buys a beautiful wedding ring and it's just sparkling with diamonds you say ah there's a real catch there's a nice godly young man and he's done something where he's bought a beautiful wedding ring oh i can't wait to see the beautiful bride he's got in mind And you make that infinitely greater with Jesus Christ laying down His life and then you find He's doing it for us sinners. The greatest person doing the greatest act for the lowest of people. And you see that humiliation then is always linked to exaltation. Servanthood is the only way to exaltation. If you were let's say, offered this deal. That for one day, you have to serve someone in this world and be their servant and do everything they ask. But if you do it well, and for that day, for the rest of your life, you get to be a king. What would that make your service like for that one day? It wouldn't be very difficult, would it? Let's say you draw a lottery and you have to serve me for one day. You come to my house and you say, I'm at your service. You know that if you just serve Pastor Mark for one day, you get to be king for the rest of your life. And you come into the house and you say, I notice a little bit of dust on the blinds. Do you want me to get that dust off for you? Uh, oh, I notice uh, there's a few fingerprints, actually about a million fingerprints on uh, various places of the house that look like the DNA of your children. Do you want me to wipe those down for you? Uh, anything else? I do cook a mean scrambled eggs that don't get too dried out, you know, and uh, the bacon's nice. Anything else I can do for you? You would be willing to serve for one day with such joy because you know what is coming. You get the rest of your life as a king and yet why is it so hard for us to take the form of servants for the days of the short life that we have, this hour we've been given knowing that we're going to be kings and princes in glory forever. You see, when you boil it down to temporal affairs, it's like, oh, that's so obvious. But then why is it so difficult? Because we are at root selfish. 
and we want to be served. And the Gospel is telling you, if Christ has really washed you, if Christ has really cleansed your feet, if Christ really has done an internal, not merely an external work, but an internal work, you will necessarily be a servant. You will be like Him, and you will serve others. And you will be blessed if you do. How do I know that? Because Christ knew that. He knew that His service of the Father would lead to glory. So, what happens when you read Psalm 41 verse 9? You find that He who has shared my bread has lifted His heel against me. But then what happens in verse 10? Lo and behold, we read, but You, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up. I bet you didn't know that. You know the quote, Judas has lifted his heel against me, but right after Judas lifting his heel against the Lord so that he goes to the cross, the psalmist is saying, but you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up. In verse 11, by this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. Why? Because you have raised me up. Verse 12, you have upheld me because of my integrity. You will not let your Holy One see decay. And you have set me in your presence forever. Where has God set Christ in His presence forever? Yes, there is suffering. Yes, someone will lift His heel against the Messiah, but He will be raised up and He will be in the presence of the Father forever because of His integrity. The question I have as we close is very simple. Are you washing the feet of others? And I'm not just talking about these silly acts that popes do and bishops where once a year everyone goes to watch and then they go and wash some poor lowly person's feet and it's a big display of basically pride and wickedness. I'm talking about a widow who is enrolled, according to Paul, if she's not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work, and has washed the feet of the saints. What are you doing in private, that God will one day make public. Not what are you doing in public so that you may be honored, but what are you doing in private that God will one day make public? What feet are you washing beside your own? Because Jesus has left you an example that you should do to others as He has done for you. Let us pray. Oh Lord our God, we thank You for Christ washing us And He alone can do that. And we thank You, O Lord, that He has left us an example that we should wash the feet of others. Remind us, O Lord, of the glory of what it means to serve others and to know that there is nobody conceivably out of our reach of service. We thank You this is true in terms of Christ to us, but we pray it may also be true of ourselves towards our friends and as well as our enemies. For Jesus' sake, amen.